Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. So, as many of you are aware, we are doing a series on the parables of Jesus um, called Trickster Jesus, and that's all about the way that Jesus tends to subvert expectations, um, the way he uses misdirection um, to make a point, to say things on the, uh, to say things slant, to use uh, a phrase. Uh, So, Glendon, if you could bring up the slides. There we go. So um, we're going to go through uh, a few verses today um, and talk about how they they interconnect. But let's start with the parable. So this is from uh, Luke 18. It's a few verses in. But Jesus told this parable to certain people who had convinced themselves that they were righteous and who looked on everyone else with disgust. Two people went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself with these words. God, thank you that I am not like everyone else. Crooks, evildoers, adulterers, and even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I receive. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even lift his eyes to look towards heaven. Rather, he struck his chest and said, God, show mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this person went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. So that's the, the parable. Um, one of the struggles we have in hearing this is we're hearing it 2,000 and yeah, almost 2,000 years into the Christian project, right? We all know the Pharisees are the bad guys, right? <laughs> um, I, you know, maybe you're hearing this for the first time. Most people who are familiar with scripture will know that the Pharisees are the bad guys. That's not how the original people would have heard this. Um, the Pharisees were part of the resistance to Hellenization. Hellenization was the tendency to propagate Greek culture that started with um, Alexander the Great, who was a Greek emperor, and then the Romans really liked Greek culture and adopted it as their own, and then when they became the imperial power, continued the process of Hellenization. And the Pharisees were about resisting that. They wanted to be really Jewish because there was this external pressure to adopt. Right? So yeah, cultural colonization is not something that you know, the British invented <laughs> and brought to North America. So if we were to tell this story in our context, it might very well be you know, the story of the brave and the colonizer. It might be the story of the feminist and the pornographer. Um, it might be the environmentalist and the oil exec, right? And then that only works if you have a positive view of the, um, you know, the brave, the feminist, and the environmentalist. In some churches, they'd be like, no, those aren't. Anyways, uh, in our context at Awaken, we'll, we'll go with that. Um, 
And so Jesus to say at the end that to just say, have mercy on me, a sinner, is what it takes to go justified, should lead to a, a what? <laughs> it, it, because it wouldn't be expected. You would expect God to be on the side of the Pharisees. The Pharisees certainly thought they were on God's side, right? They were certain about that. Um, and I mean, all the things that the Pharisee prays are not things that I, I think Jesus is endorsing. He's not saying we should be crooks, evil doers, and adulterers. Um, oh, and the other connection here is that because the Pharisees were in resistance to the process of Hellenization and against Rome, the tax collector profited from the, the Roman system, right? So those two, they're not just a a good guy and somebody over here is doing bad, they are in direct opposition to one another. And the thing that they're in opposition about, everyone hearing the story knows that God is on the side of the opposition. And you know, the Romans crucified Jesus, he's not a big fan. <laughs> so it's really shocking that he goes with the tax collector on this. And that should raise all sorts of questions. Now, Okay, that's about three minutes, <laughs> four minutes. So, okay, so that's all I'm going to say for now on this parable because Luke uses this parable to introduce three other stories that he gets from Mark, uh, from Mark 10, actually. And those stories exist in Mark almost in an identical form. There's one change that I'll bring up later. Um, he adds a story in the middle, but other than that, they're in the same order. And then he adds on another story that calls back to this initial parable. So this collection of six, maybe seven stories, um, and I'll get to why I think it might be seven after, but they really belong as a set. So rather than me going on about this parable, we're going to go through those other stories and see how those stories talk to this parable and how this parable talks to those stories. Because we tend to know verses in the church, but the Bible is not a collection of verses. It's a collection of stories, and they're stories that interrelate. So I'm going to take you through the rest of 18 and into a story in 19 that I believe Luke has put together deliberately. And the reason I think they're deliberately is he's reframed stories from Mark because Jesus, before the first story that we get here in Luke, was talking about divorce. So Luke has picked them up and rearranged them, and I think they all interconnect. Those three stories interconnect in Mark as well, but Luke has built on that, is my hypothesis. All right, so first story. People were bringing babies to Jesus so that he would bless them. When the disciples saw this, they scolded them, and then Jesus called them to him and said, allow the children to come to me. Don't forbid them because God's kingdom belongs to the people like these children. I assure you that whoever doesn't welcome God's kingdom like a child will never enter into it. Have you ever wondered what that means? What does it mean to welcome? Because I mean, that's a pretty stern warning. If we don't get this right, we don't enter the kingdom. <laughs> that's pretty, I don't know, that's kind of basic. Um, so what does that mean? And, you know, I could go on about how it means we need to inter embrace our inner child and do cartwheels and not worry about looking professional. But, you know, that's, that's me uh, speaking off the cuff. But if we go back to the previous story, who was acting more like the child? 
right? We have the Pharisee who's very confident in his own, what he's attained, that he's better than other people. And we have the sinner, the tax collector, crying out, Lord, have mercy. In some translations, it says, Father, have mercy. Um, and so I would say that this is a comment very much, those two stories interact at that level, right? Because he said he, that the tax collector went home justified. The tax collector entered the kingdom by calling out, Lord, have mercy. And Jesus says that the only people who enter are the ones who receive the kingdom like a child. And so I would say that there's a parallel there. It's also an introduction to our next story. All right. So a certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus replied, why do you call me good? No one is good except the one God. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Then the ruler said, I've kept all these things since I was a boy. When Jesus heard this, he said, there's one more thing. Sell everything you own and distribute the money to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When he heard this wor these words, the man became sad because he was extremely rich. Okay, so a couple of points here. I got to admit, when I hear Jesus say, why do you call me good? No one is good except the one God. I hear Jesus making a sly reference to his divinity. And, you know, that's because I was raised in the church, right? So, but there's no way that the ruler would have had the context to make that connection. And I don't know if, if you know, the early gospel readers uh, would have caught that. I catch it, and whether you do or not, I, I don't know. But the message the ruler should have gotten from that is God alone is good. You're not God. You're not good, right? And yet the guy doesn't get this because he says, I've kept all of the commandments since I was a boy. Mm, okay. Um, and notice the echo to that to our Pharisee from the first parable, right? Thank you that I'm not an adulterer, a, a thief. You know, I'm not a collaborator like the tax collector. This guy is convinced of his own goodness, right? He's accomplished. Um, and notice that unlike the parents and the kids, he was able just to walk right up to Jesus. Like if you listen closely, and I should have done this at the beginning, asked you to listen closely, because you can hear the disciples in the background going, finally, somebody important, right? Um, and then he goes away sad because he's not willing to do the one more thing. And I got to admit, I hear Columbo in that. And I don't most of you are too young to know this, but it was a TV show where Columbo, you know, when he was confronting the villain at the end of the show, you know, he'd kind of ramble on and then he'd say, oh yeah, one more question. And it was always the, the gotcha that, that proved that they were guilty, right? Um, and so when Jesus says, oh yeah, there's just one more thing. I don't think it's like the one thing, that, like the guy had it all together except for this one thing. It's like, give it all up, give your money away, and notice he does not say, give your money to me. If a pastor uses this 
to, to tell you to give money to the church, the pastor is not listening to this passage. The pastor says, go and give the money to the poor. The poor are generally not known for managing their money well. Actually, a lot of the wealthy aren't either, but that's a whole socioeconomic side I don't want to get into. But he says, go and give it away to the poor. So give up your prestige, what you've accomplished, let it go, and come and follow me like a child. Right? The echo of the previous thing. And going again, giving the money to the poor, a friend of mine, Mike Graff, who was a groomsman at Nikayla's wedding, and Lori knows from Converge, wave to Lori at the back there. Um, <laughs> so a small world. Um, when you're talking about this, Mike's like, that's one step away from taking the money, putting it on the altar, and setting it on fire, which is why we have this next gift. Right? So it's one step away from that, but that would be Joker Jesus, and we said we aren't doing that in this series. So, <laughs> okay, we'll go back to the text. Um, so, so, yeah, so that is the rich young ruler. Now, this is one story where we get a whole other story that's a reaction to this story. It's, it's kind of the follow-up, so we'll go to the next slide. So when Jesus saw that, he said, it's very hard for a wealth, the wealthy to enter God's kingdom. It's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. And those who heard this said, then who can be saved? Right? Another indication that people did not have a problem with the ruler. He was well-respected. He was wealthy. He, you know, <laughs> he, he received God's blessing. So if the people who have received God's blessing can't be saved, what, it's just they're having a hard time comprehending this. And Jesus says, what is impossible for humans is possible for God. And then Peter speaks up and says, look, we left everything we own and followed you. And Jesus said to them, I assure you that anyone who has left house, husband, wife, brothers, sister, parents, or children because of God's kingdom will receive many times more in this age and eternal life in the coming age. So I'll admit Peter's comment is a little vague here. Eugene Peterson in the message says that Peter, in order to regain initiative, said, look, we've left everything and we own and followed you. But I can't find any reference to that in other translations. Um, and I'll be honest, I hear this very much as Peter complaining. Having left everything and invested in the mission of Jesus, we finally get somebody important and you let him go. Right? So I've sacrificed everything for this, and, you know, is it wasted? And I think that goes with Jesus' response of saying, you know, I assure you that what you've left. Now, I find it fascinating that Jesus defines both the cost and the benefit of the kingdom in terms of relationships. Right? That the promise is that you will have, you know, Many more husbands, wives, brothers, that could get complicated. But anyway, <laughs> don't think we're to take that quite that literally. But anyways, um, yeah, the, the main definition of the kingdom is relational, both in its cost and its benefits. So, okay, let's move on to the, the next story. So Jesus took the 12 aside and said, look, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything written about the human one by the prophets will be accomplished. 
He will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be ridiculed, mistreated, and spit on. After torturing him, they will kill him. On the third day, he will rise up. But the twelve understood none of these words. The meaning of this message was hidden from them, and they didn't grasp what he was saying. Okay, there's a lot there, and I'm just going to comment, make a couple of comments. One is, the, one of the reasons I trust the Gospels is they're not propaganda. The Gospels were written at the time that the Twelve were the beloved leaders of the church. If you're just making stuff up, you don't make up stories that make you look this bad. Okay? We're in one chapter, and we've already seen the disciples get it wrong with the people coming to Jesus, get in the way of people that Jesus is like, yeah, no, don't block those people. Peter whining. And this, where Jesus literally tells them what's to happen, and they're like, yeah, yeah we, we didn't understand what was going on. These are not deeply spiritual people who immediately understood things. <laughs> and it's one of the reasons I trust the Gospels, because, again, at the time they were written, they would have had everything to profit from, you know, doing this story in a way that made them look good. They regularly do not look good. <laughs> like I said, one chapter, and they look terrible. All right. The other thing I'm going to point out is a phrase that I just can't escape uh, while preparing for this sermon. By the way, this is the injection that Luke adds to the three, set of three stories. And he says, Jesus took the 12 aside. Now, it probably just means that he took them aside to tell them privately. But I can't help but noticing that, you know, if we read it in isolation, then yeah, he just took them aside to tell them privately. But I can't help but notice that in the pattern of all these stories, it's only the people who are coming from the side, from the margins, who get blessed. Right? If you go back to the first parable, you get the Pharisee who's, you know, um, very confident. The tax collector was off to the side. In one of the translations, it says he was in the shadows. The disciples try to sideline the parents and the children, right? But then Jesus reaches out to them and brings them in, and they get blessed. The ruler walks up without any interference. He goes away disappointed, right? And then Jesus takes the disciples aside to reveal what's going to happen. Now, they still don't get it, but he takes them aside. Probably doesn't mean anything, but it certainly means something in the pattern of the other five stories, and so I can't escape being haunted by the use of the phrase here. All right, so let's go on. Also, in the next two stories, the people at the margins are the people who get blessed. So it's in, it's on, it's in all the other stories, so why wouldn't it be in that one? Okay, so Jesus came to Jericho. A certain blind man was sitting beside the road begging. When the man heard the crowd passing by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus the Nazarene is passing by. The blind men shouted, Jesus, son of David, show, mercy, show me mercy. Those leading the procession scolded him, telling him to be quiet. But he shouted even louder, son of David, show me mercy. Jesus stopped and called the man to be brought to him. When he was present, Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, I want to see. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. 
at once he was able to see and began to follow Jesus praising God. When all the people saw it, they praised God too. This is one of my favorite and least favorite stories. So for the reason it's my least favorite is receive your sight, your faith has healed you. And I want to believe it's that simple. My experience is it's not that simple. I've, I've done the you know, anointing of people with oil and praying with them and, and had them die. And it was a young man who had been a missionary in the Philippines and had lost his leg to cancer and it came back. And his wife is still a member of my mom's church, I believe. Uh, Joanna Love, I'm trying to remember her name. Anyways, um, but she's still active. She's still a, a woman of faith. And so for his faith, you know, I can see that, you know, my prayers might not be <laughs> particularly strong, but, I, you know, I can't believe that their faith wasn't strong enough. So, yeah, I don't know what to do with that. Um, I do, I have, know that pe other people struggle with this in the simplistic way that people say, oh, yeah, just have faith and you'll be healed because of this story. Um, and, yeah, so if you struggle with that, I'm right there with you. I wish I had a nice, clean, reassuring way of cleaning that up. By the way, I have enough, I know enough stories, like two or three stories of miraculous healing that I also can't dismiss it because, you know, that'd be, I'd love to be in the camp that says, no, miracles were just a thing in Jesus' time, and now they're not, and it's just that simple. But I don't believe that either. So, yeah, it, it's a mess. I have no clean way of dealing with that. I'm sorry. The reason it's one of my favorite stories is I'm a loud guy. I've been shushed by the crowd, so <laughs> I resonate <laughs> with this guy. Um, but in context, I hear a lot more than just the part about healing going on here. That the, we know from other passages, the working assumption would have been that he was blind because of either his sin or his parents' sin, right? And I think that's why you see the crowd shushing him. God has already condemned you. You're blind because of sin, either yours or your parents. Jesus doesn't have time for you. And yet he, he calls out anyways, and Jesus does have time for him. And he reaches out and says to him, no, you're not accursed, is what I hear in this reading. And I hear, he says, what do you want me to do for you? After, doing, after hearing um, Darcy's excellent sermon on Lazarus, I can't help but notice that he's giving the man agency. He isn't just assuming, oh, you're blind. I mean, he's Jesus. He knows what the guy's going to say, right? Um, but he asks. He gives the man agency, and he gives him credit for the healing. Your faith has healed you. Um, and if you don't understand the, how that interacts with the Lazarus story, you, um, Darcy's sermon is on our podcast, and you really should go listen to it. Uh, it's time well spent. Um, so yeah, I, I see this as a yet another case of Jesus cr going where people are not expecting him to go because the crowd was shushing him because he should know better. And yet he insisted on calling out. And so Jesus calls him and he does he get healed and people praise God. All right, uh, let's, oh, the one detail that's not in this version, that's in Mark, that I absolutely love is the fact that in Mark we get the detail that this is Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is named, right? 
And the reason I think that's important is because the ruler in the story, you know, just before, at least in Mark, two stories ago, in, our, in this case, would have been well known. Imagine if in the year 4022, people know the name of one of the bottle collectors from Bonas and don't remember who Nenshi is. That's the inversion that's going on and the fact that we know it's Bartimaeus. Okay? And Luke drops that detail, and I don't know why. But he does end this section on a story where somebody who is an outsider is named. And so maybe that's the shift, I don't know. But let's go on to the next story. So Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through town. A man there, a man there named Zacchaeus, a ruler among tax collectors, was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but being a short man couldn't because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree so that he could see Jesus, who was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to that spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down at once. I must stay at your home today. So Zacchaeus came down at once, happy to welcome Jesus. Everyone who saw this grumbled, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone, I repay them four times as much. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this household, because he too is a son of Abraham. Excuse me. The human one came to seek and save the lost. And so now I think we've come full circle. We've come back to the parable where the tax collector goes home repentant and reconciled. And the crowd is very much playing the role of the Pharisee because they're upset very much as the way you would expect, as I said earlier, you should have been when the tax collector went home because we all know that God is on the side of the resistors on on this, not on the side of the collaborators, right? And so all of these stories, um, the people who are blessed are the people at the margins. Okay, so what does all that mean? Because we've gone through a fair bit of scripture. Nikhil was like, you're going to read all that scripture? Yeah, I'm going to read all that scripture. <laughs> so I, I think there's kind of three points from what I, what I hope is the obvious. As we approach God, we, we enter the kingdom by calling for mercy. And I think that's fairly consistent across the stories. As followers of Jesus who want to walk in the way of Jesus, I think we need to listen for calls of mercy. The way Jesus listened, you know, and brought the, the parents in, um, brought the blind man in, brought Zacchaeus down from the tree. I could also make a comparison to, you know, who climbs trees. Kids. Zacchaeus is up the tree like a kid and he enters the kingdom like a kid. Anyways, that's an aside. Um, so, one, we, we call for mercy. Two, we listen for calls of mercy. Three, is if we are the body of Christ. Maybe our approach to one another. So if we approach God saying, have mercy. And we believe we are the body of Christ. Maybe we approach one another 
with have mercy. And we listen to one another's cries for mercy. So that would be the, the third point. Now, if only we had a ritual that would drive home the idea that we approach one another for mercy and give mercy to one another, but I don't know, we'll have to think about that. Uh, so, uh, communion, anybody? So, so yeah, we do communion here at Awaken. Um, in a way, communion, the way communion is done is one of the reasons I knew that I was home when I came here. Um, Lori knows that I was part of Converge, and before that I was part of a community called Exalt. And in both those communities, it, the, the default was you came forward individually to the elements and you took communion. And I said, yeah, that's a little bit like, you know, doing a foot washing where you wash your own feet. Um, I love communities where you serve one another because, well, that's a whole other long theological side of things. But yeah, it is one of the reasons that I, when I first came to Awaken, it's like, yeah, okay, this feels like home because I don't have to argue about this. They're already doing it. So the way we do communion is we will, Nikayla will come up here and stand beside me, yeah? Okay. Um, and we'll have two lines. And then, you know, whoever comes up first, if I don't know your name, I'll ask your name because I want to be able to say, Let's say it's hope. I'll pick on hope. Hi, hope. Um, <laughs> I'll pick on hope. And I'll say, hope, the body of Christ broken for you. And hope, the blood of Christ shed for you. And she'll dip the, the, the bread in the, the cup and take it and take a moment. And then I'll go to the back and she'll do the, the one for the, whoever's the next in line. And, and so on. And so we'll serve one another. And it's an open communion. Everybody is welcome. All you have to do, if you're willing to do what I just described, you're willing to come forward. And a, at least a couple of times in talking about open communion, it has been asked, well, how can you do that? Because Paul says that if you do the communion in a way that is unworthy, you're drinking condemnation on yourself. And Paul is absolutely correct. I love that passage. I hate the way it's been used, but I love that passage. You have to go back and read that passage. All the ways that Paul talks about that he says are ways that are not worthy of the gospel are things that elevate the rich like the ruler who went away disappointed um, and subvert the community so the richer privileged the poor are left out is not worthy of the gospel we just heard an open table is very much in the spirit of Jesus who says whoever believes. Whoever wants to come is invited. Anybody who's willing to ask for mercy and give mercy is invited to this table. So that's why we do an open table. It's not in contradiction of Paul. It's because we've heard what Paul said and want to do it in a way that is worthy. Okay, so let's, let's say a, a prayer of thanksgiving and then we will um, begin communion. Lord, thank you for your presence. Thank you for the gift of this um, tradition. Thank you that you, that your body was broken for us, that your blood was shed for us, and that you call us to do this in remembrance of you. Help us to be, to do it in a way that is worthy, that accepts your mercy, that we are willing to come as children and learn from you. 
In your name we pray. Amen.